Well, I'd love to have you take your Bibles with me this morning, and we're actually going to start in Psalm 67, so if you would turn there, that's where we will we'll find ourselves. As you're turning there, uh, I imagine that we all have had moments in our life where we have looked to somebody with some hope that they will make a difference that we're hoping for, whether it's a politician, boy, if this person gets elected, surely they will just fix everything, Right? Uh, Or maybe it's a CEO. If this person comes in, they'll turn this company around. Uh, My investment will look better or that product that I love, the company I used to love will turn themselves around, start making the products I I want to see. Maybe it's a sports star, you know, finally, we'll get our team. This will be our year because we got that one guy or we got that new defensive coaching staff and surely the Seahawks will actually sack some people next year. I don't know. But as we know, that oftentimes when we put our hope in people, we're let down, aren't we? And as we come to our text today, eventually in Isaiah, we're going to kind of see that idea of we're not going to find our hope fulfilled in any human leader, in any earthly leader. And um, Isaiah is helping us see that today. But before we get there, a few words of review And then I want us to begin in Psalm 67, but we've been looking at Isaiah this whole time. In the 66 chapters, we've talked about how they're divided up. The first uh, 39 chapters, speaking of this message of judgment, of woe. And then the second part of Isaiah, a very different message, 40 to 66, speaking a message of hope and restoration. Uh, Last week, Pastor Jay finished up that first section of prophecy we saw there that there is indeed a day coming, a day of judgment where we will stand before God and be held accountable. Uh, that message throughout the first section of trust God, don't put your trust in other things. And we saw that, that section kind of wrap up there. Well, where we come today in Isaiah is four chapters that take a very different uh, approach. Rather than in prophetic literature, We have four chapters of historic narrative. They tell a story. They tell a story of a guy named Hezekiah. He's king. And in this, we're going to see a few things. There's four chapters, but it tells two stories. And in one story, we're going to see that Hezekiah is a living example of everything that Isaiah has been talking about. Trust God. If you trust God, he's going to come through for you. And sure enough, we're going to see how this happens in Hezekiah's life. But then we're also going to see something about Hezekiah that, that is kind of disappointing. And we're going to see he's not the, the redeemer that we're looking for. And it sets us up for the second part of Isaiah where in 40 through 66, we're kind of told we need to be looking for somebody greater, uh, a better person, a better leader. And so that's kind of where we find ourselves today. Two narratives, uh, four chapters, But before we get there, I want to use uh, Psalm 67 to create kind of a foundation for us. Um, So before we do that, let's pray. Let's ask God for his help, and then we'll jump into Psalm 67. So pray with me. God, uh, again, we we come before you, you thankful to you for who you are, thankful that you have revealed yourself in your word, thankful for just this time to have as a church body to come before you and open your word. And as we do this, God... Uh, help us to see what you want us to see today. Uh, give us hearts that are soft, that are shapeable, that are teachable. Uh, give us ears that can hear, eyes that can see. Most of all, God, as you reveal yourself to us, work in us and change us. 
Um, God, help us to avoid the temptation to try to fix ourselves through our strength, but rather, God, give us your strength. Help us to lean on your strength for these changes. So God, in this time, we thank you for it, and we lift this up to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so I trust you found Psalm 67. Again, I want to read this because it will form a foundation for what we're looking at today. I'm going to read the entire psalm, a shorter psalm, but one of my favorites. It says this, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Well, with that psalm read, the reason I start there this morning is I really do believe Psalm 67 uh, gives us a paradigm. It gives us a lens to look through, understand a lot of what God is doing in the scriptures. And what I want us to see is this idea of a top line and a bottom line. And what do I mean by a top line and a bottom line? Well, uh, Psalm 67 gives us this key principle to see that in God's blessings and his redemptive plan. There's both a top line and a bottom line. And what we see is that God's blessings are always tied to his global purposes. So what in the world do I mean by top line? What's the top line of God's blessings? Well, the top line is this. When it comes to having a relationship with God, there is indeed blessing for us. And this is uh, verse one. Look at it. May God be gracious to us, bless us, make his face to shine upon us. Is that a good thing? Absolutely. To be in relationship with God, there is, there is tangible benefit. There is good things. There is blessing. And as you see there on your notes, God's work does include benefits to us both physically and spiritually. But here's the thing. That's the top line. It's not the bottom line. So it's part of God's blessings, but it's not the whole thing. And as you see on your notes there, I say, but we are not the end goal. Yes, blessing for us, but we're not the end goal. In other words, the benefit to us is not the bottom line of God's purposes. So what's the bottom line? Well, we see that in verse 2, because you might notice verse 1 of Psalm 67 doesn't have a period. It's not the end of the statement. Rather, you see, there's a comma there, and the next word is a causal word, that. Why does God, why is he gracious to us? Why does he bless us? Why does he cause his face to shine on us? Well, it's so that, your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. See, the bottom line of God's blessings is always tied to God's glory among the nations. He's working for his global glory among all peoples. See, oftentimes I think when we think about God's redemptive plan, we tend to think about it only in individualistic terms. Like, you know, God has a wonderful plan for your life and, you know, he wants to get you saved and you know, you have this great destiny, and, and indeed, all of that is true, but you are not the end goal of God's redemptive plan. Fortunately, God's redemptive plan includes you, but God's redemptive plan is to make for himself a people of all peoples, a people of all nations that would come and glorify him 
in that final day that we look at in Revelation 21, when the kings of the earth bring the honor and the glory of the nations before God to worship him. So this is what God is working towards. And it's really good for us to develop this paradigm that as we read Scripture, think, okay, as God's working, what's the top line? Yeah, certainly benefit for people, but what is, what's the bottom line? What's the bottom line? And we see this throughout Scripture. Let me give you some examples of this because it's a consistent theme. I think it's a driving theme of Scripture. Uh, a couple examples would be Abraham and Daniel. Abraham, was he a blessed guy? Yeah, right? He got family and land and he got wealth and there's some great blessings there. But notice that Abraham's being blessed was not the end goal of what God was doing. God wasn't playing some game of favoritism like, I'm going to bless you at the expense of other people. Rather, what God says in Genesis 12.3 is, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. In other words, top line, yes, Abraham had some wonderful benefits, but the bottom line, Abraham, what I'm doing through you is going to bring true worship of me to every family on earth. Every nation, every people group is going to know who the true God is. Okay? We see this as well in Daniel. Daniel was a guy who had a lot of blessings from God, and one particular one was being saved from the lion's den. We're probably familiar with this story. Was it a, a blessing for Daniel to be saved from the hungry lions? Absolutely. I know if I were in a den full of a bunch of hungry lions, I would want God to bless me in a similar way. Uh, certainly, blessing, right? I, I've saved you, Daniel. Is that the end goal of what God was doing? Was it just to save Daniel from hungry lions? No, this was the top line, but it wasn't the bottom line. What's the bottom line? Well, I give you Daniel 6, 25, 27. Notice what happens as a result of Daniel being saved from the lions. King Darius makes a decree. It says, then King Darius wrote to all the people's nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who saved Daniel from the power of the lions. What's the bottom line? Top line, Daniel is saved. Bottom line, hey, let all the nations know that this is the true and living God. Let all the nations fear him. Let all the nations worship him. All right? See what I'm getting at here? So when we read Scripture, as we think even about in our own life, how has God blessed us? Yeah, there's a top line, but we always have to think about, but what's the bottom line? Okay, the reason I start here today, and you can begin making your way over to uh, Isaiah chapter 36, where we'll find ourselves for the rest of the time, is really this is an important foundation to have as we look at this, because I think the two stories that are told today in King Hezekiah's life are dealing with this. In one story, he's living for the bottom line, and in the other story, he kind of forgets about the bottom line, and it's a key difference between the two. And it's key to what Isaiah is getting at here. So as we get into Isaiah then, as you make your way there, what we're going to find is in this first part in King Hezekiah's life, we're going to see two decrees. There's two kings involved. There's Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and then there's God as king. And kind of the big question is, 
who are you going to trust? All right? So this is kind of wrapping up all this prophecy up to this point, saying you need to trust God. So who, who are you going to trust? Well, uh, in this, Sennacherib has kind of torn through Judah. He's kind of taken every fortified city that's tried to stand against him. And now he's at Jerusalem's door. And Hezekiah has been preparing for this. He's ready to make a stand. Uh, you can read Second Chronicles 32, and you can see some of the things that Hezekiah does. He, he actually reroutes an entire river, saying, you know, why should the Assyrians have easy access to water when they get here? So he reroutes an entire river to make sure that they have access to water, but Sennacherib won't. He builds up his fortifications. He builds more walls. He, you know, builds towers. He procures shields and spears for his people. But the main thing he does is he gathers people as he tells them, hey, trust God. He encourages them to say, God has this, okay? Put your trust in God. Well, how's Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, going to respond to this? Well, he sends this guy, the Rabshakeh, who's a spokesman. This is a title. It's not his name, but the Rabshakeh comes, and his idea is, I'm going to intimidate the people of Jerusalem. And I want you to see how he goes about trying to demoralize and convince them to give up. I'm going to read a lot of our text today, not all of it, but a lot of it, because it's, it's a narrative, and it's, just, it's fun to read, and it'll be good for us. So I want you to see what he says in Isaiah 36, verse 1. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. All right, so we have this guy who's a spokesman for the king of Assyria, and he's met by three officials of Hezekiah's. And what do we find here? Well, first of all, I want you to see this, that Hezekiah is now facing the same test that his father faced before. His father Ahaz in Isaiah 7, uh, chapter 7, was in this very spot 34 years ago. And um, he was warned by Isaiah at that time, hey, don't fear trust God, and he doesn't quite pass this test. Well, 34 years later, here is his son, Hezekiah, now king, who is in the same place facing the exact same test. And the question is, is he going to pass or is he going to fail? Well, Hezekiah is a very different guy from his dad. Uh, One, he tears down the high places where false worship is being held. He restores worship at the temple he reestablishes the priesthood. He reestablishes observance of Passover. I mean, before him, things were an absolute mess. And so now he, as king, he's following God, and he's facing the same test, but he's a very different guy from his dad. And, and what we see here is he's been following God, but it's kind of like now, now that you have all the forces of Assyria at your door, now that you have this basically impossible situation in front of you, are you really going to trust God? Well, let's see what he does. Um, first, I want you to see the rest of this guy's speech to them, okay? So the Rav has come to them in verse 4, and look at what he says. He said, notice he never calls Hezekiah king. He only refers to Sennacherib as king. This is psychological warfare going on here, all right? Notice what he says. He says, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, 
On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? And whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, oh, we trust the Lord our God, is not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against the land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So what's he saying? First of all, I want you to see this, that he's not making a logical argument here. He's just kind of throwing everything at them to persuade them, to dishearten them, to discourage them. So his argument kind of goes like this. First of all, he says, well, you can't be trusting. Why are you standing up to me? You can't be trusting Egypt. They're like this pointy stick that you'll injure yourself on, a broken stick. Uh, so it's not them. So who are you trusting? Oh, are you trusting your God? Well, didn't you guys take down all the high places? Now, get this. This is a pagan guy, right? He doesn't understand what Hezekiah has done. He, think, he thinks Hezekiah has done something really stupid. Like, in the pagan world, you don't take down the high places. The high places are where you get access to God's power. But he's saying, no, why are you trusting, why are you trusting God to help you? You took all his high places down. He doesn't understand that Hezekiah has restored proper worship here. And then he taunts them with the latest military technology. Hey, I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can get anybody who knows how to ride them. You're kind of like me showing up to a remote village somewhere with you know, the latest military helicopters and saying, I'll give you all these if you can find pilots for them. And he's kind of saying, not only do we have better technology than you, but even if you had this, you wouldn't be able to use it. And finally, I think the most astounding argument he makes is he says, oh, and by the way, your own God sent me to destroy you. Okay, not a logical argument because in a few moments he's going to say, by the way, can your God save you? We've destroyed all the other gods. We'll destroy him too. Uh, so do you see what's going on here? He's just kind of running his mouth and threatening them. But he does uh, have an impact. In fact, he's speaking in Hebrew and these three officials are like, hey, can you talk to us in Aramaic? That's the language of diplomacy. We understand it. You can talk to us. He says, no, I'm going to speak Hebrew so everybody can hear me. And he makes some pretty wild threats to the people within earshot. And then I want you to notice what he does. He starts speaking to the people on the walls. Verse 16, he says to them, do not listen to Hezekiah for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his, each one of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. In other words, you know what? Just give up now and life will be good for you. If you give up now, you'll get to enjoy some prosperity. You'll get to enjoy your own land. And yeah, we're gonna take you into exile, but... Trust me, we're going to take you to just as nice of a place as this somewhere else. I don't know about you, but I'm not trusting this guy at this point, right? Uh, but this is kind of the promise he's making. And sure enough, he has his effect to, to dishearten and, and discourage the people. These three officials respond in tearing their robes. They come before Hezekiah. Hezekiah tears his robes. 
And Hezekiah sends them to Isaiah, and I want you to see what Isaiah tells them. He gives them a message from God, and this is what God says in, in verse 6. Isaiah said to them, this is um, the next chapter, if you haven't caught that. Uh, verse 6, Isaiah says to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. I kind of love that. You know, God's response after all these words and all this blustering, God's response is simple and direct and to the point. And notice that God sees this as he's reviling me and I'm going to deal with him. Don't worry about it. And sure enough, just as God says, they receive this rumor that the king of Cush is kind of rising up. So Sennacherib takes off. The Rabshakeh takes off with him. But he sends a letter as he's going to again say, hey, don't get your hopes up. We're coming back for you. Okay, We're going to be right back here. and We'll deal with this. And I love Hezekiah's response because he takes this letter and he comes and he puts it before God. And I want you to see his prayer before God. Verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria has laid waste to all the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. So rather than giving in, Hezekiah doesn't lose heart. He comes before God. And, and I want you to see this, that unlike his father, he passes the test. He trusts God to deliver. And, and sure enough, God's going to deliver in a spectacular fashion. But I want you to notice this, that he bases his request, not on the top line, not on, oh, save us because it's good for us, but he bases it on the bottom line. Look at verse 20 again. Why does he want God to do this? Save us that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. So in this moment, I think one of the things that is, you know, in Hezekiah's victory is that he's living for the bottom line of God's purposes. He wants God to defend himself so that he, all the world would know who he is. And sure enough, God does. God comes back and, and sends another message to him through through Isaiah. And I love the, the process of this because one of the things he looks at is all the things that the king of Assyria is bragging about. In verse 26, God's like, don't you know that this all happened because of me? Every conquest you've had, every victory you've had is only because I allowed it. I foretold it from long ago. And then he says, I'm going to now humble you. There's going to be some humility here. And you're going to go back to where you came from and you're not even going to shoot an arrow into the city. And does God do this? Well, yeah, he does. Look at verse 36. An angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. 
Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sharezer, his son, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped in the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. So we see exactly as God said, Hammond, hey, drive this guy away. He's going to fall by his own sword. And, and notice that he never fires an arrow into the city. Hezekiah doesn't have to lift a sword against him. God wants us to be so clear that this is my work to do. And I want you to see this, that this is an example where God's been saying, trust me, trust me, even when it doesn't make any human sense. When the odds are stacked against you, trust me, and this is not me just saying something to make you feel good about your situation. I really will come through for you. And as we said, he delivers spectacularly. And here we see Hezekiah's victory. He trusts God. And sure enough, God is faithful to his promise. So that's the first part. Hezekiah's victory, but we have another part now, and that's Hezekiah's failure. In chapter 38 and 39, we get a new story of Hezekiah's life. Now, as we come to this, we need to understand one of Isaiah's prophecies to Hezekiah's father was a sign that a child would be born who would be the long-expected redeemer. This was back in chapter 7, again, when his father faced the same test And you might remember from that time, Pastor Jay was preaching about that, that there was kind of this false humility. Ahaz was like, I'm not going to put God to the test. And God's like, well, let me give you a sign and I'll I'll let you know what's going on. And one of the signs was the child's going to be born to you. Uh, He's going to be called Emmanuel. And there's this expectation of, hey, there's going to be this redeemer. Well, I think that as we look at Hezekiah, there are people thinking, well, is Hezekiah that child? Is he the redeemer? Is he the king whose throne is going to be established forever? I mean, he's really righteous. He's victorious. He's had victory. Uh, Is he the person? Is he the guy? And I think what Isaiah is doing here is he's establishing for us something that, no, this, this isn't the guy. This isn't the one you're looking for. You need to be looking for somebody greater than this. And so to answer this, Isaiah shows us a time in Hezekiah's life, and I believe that this actually takes place before the prior events. It's not in chronological order. When God sends this message to Hezekiah that he's going to certainly die. And in response to this, it doesn't stop Hezekiah from pleading with God, and God answers his cry. He heals him, and he gives him a miraculous sign. Check out chapter 38, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amaz, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. So pretty sure message, right? But Hezekiah pleads with God. And he, said, he turned his face to a wall and he prayed to the Lord. And he said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, said, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. So there's one clue that this takes place beforehand because here God's saying, I'm going to deliver you from the king of Assyria previous chapter, we saw God already had done that. He did deliver him. So this is taking place beforehand. So this shall be a sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he's promised. Behold, 
I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back 10 steps. So the sun turned back on the dial, the 10 steps which it had been declined. So, which it had declined. So anyway, what we see here is God says, okay, I, I'm listening to you. I'm going to give you more life. I'm going to bless you in this way. And just so you know, this is going to happen. I'm going to do this miraculous sign. I'm actually going to wind your sundial back a little bit. The sundials don't work this way, right? You can't change the time on them. I've never seen this. So pretty miraculous sign here. So there's some blessing for, for uh, Hezekiah. Now, here, I believe that Isaiah wants us to see why the next part of the book exists. Because we have Hezekiah. He has this great thing done for him. But then he's going to get some visitors. And we see there's something not quite right going on here. Okay, He gets some visitors from Babylon. Uh, we see the, the next part in your notes. After this, Merodach Baladon, king, Babylon's king, sends envoys. And Hezekiah shows all his wealth to him. Another reason why we'd say this is not in chronological order, because Merodach Baladon was king up until 702 BC. The previous story took place in 701 BC, a year later. So this is, this is in the past, but notice what happens. Look at chapter 39. At that time, Merodach Baladon, the son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard he'd been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all the realm that Hezekiah did not show them. So what's going on here? Well, I think that what we see here is Hezekiah has been so blessed by God that he's kind of gotten it into his head, like, His focus is on the blessings. He's kind of believing his own press release at this point. And this is one of the realities. Even very righteous people who have great victories for God sometimes kind of get into their own press release. And I think that he's started now, instead of looking at the bottom line of God's blessings, he's fixated on the top line, the benefits to him. And so it's almost like he's he's, uh, kind of swimming in all the wealth and blessings, and he's really happy to show it off to people. Isaiah comes to him. Look at verse 3. Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said, what did these men say? From where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, they've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, well, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that's in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. And kind of a boasting going on. Verse 5, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. Wow. Stunning final words for the king to speak. Now I want you to notice this. In the previous chapter, he received a certain word from God. And how did he respond to the certain word? He pleaded with God. And God listened to him. Now he receives another certain word from God. The Babylonians are going to plunder you. And yet he doesn't cry out to God. Do you notice that? 
Rather, he's content that there's at least peace and security in his days. And, and here's why I think that Isaiah is including this, as it reveals part of the failure here. Is this the guy we're looking to? Is this the Redeemer of Israel? Well, obviously not, right? This is the guy saying, oh, well, there's peace in my day. I don't really care what happens to the next generation. This is not the guy we're looking for. And that's the failure. What's the failure? That Hezekiah is living for, he's not living at this point for the bottom line. He's not thinking about the people's future. He's not thinking about God's glory. He's not even thinking about the day he's going to stand before God. He's just thinking about right now, what's in it for me? And as long as things work out for me, fine. Stunning. Yeah, this is not the guy. And here's what I think is going on here, is he's so content in his blessing He's failing to live for the reason for his blessing, the bottom line, which is God's glory. I'm okay if all your stuff gets carried off, if your name is defiled among the nations. Rather, he should be crying out to God, God, don't let this happen to your reputation. And he never does it. Now, here's the thing as we look at this, as we think about how do we respond to God's word. Um, the reason I talk about the chronology of this is I think it's really important to understand uh, because if we get it wrong, if we think this is in chronological order, sometimes the application of this gets a little wonky. Uh, sometimes the application of this is like, look, see, Hezekiah was this great guy who had this great victory, and then he got sick and he was supposed to die, and God gave him more life, and then he failed after that. So the message of this, this section of the Bible is die when it's your time. <laughs> and I've heard that, and I've actually, in studying for this, I read it. It's almost like a reverse of the, uh, you know, the, the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. You remember where George Bailey thinks, you know, the world would be better without him. He's feeling sorry for himself. He's going to jump off the bridge. The angel comes and shows him, you know, what life would look like if he didn't exist. And he realizes, oh, it's a better world when I'm in it. So I don't jump. Well, it's like the reverse of that, right? Some people's uh, way they interpret this passage is to say, well, the world would be a better place without you, Hezekiah. Just die already. And that's not the point of this, okay? Here's what I think is going on. Is Isaiah is showing on one hand, yeah, Hezekiah had great victories and great successes. And when you trust God, this is what it looks like. But Hezekiah is not the guy. He wasn't perfect. He had failures. And he wasn't the one we need. And it's kind of supposed to cause us to long for a better king. Part of what we see here is that trusting God is an ongoing action. It's not a one-time decision. Like Hezekiah, you are marked by your whole life, not just one-time victory. God wants you to trust him all the time, ongoing. Now, like Hezekiah too, we're not marked by a single failure. See, I don't think Isaiah's point is to trash Hezekiah. His point is simply to show he's not the guy. He's a human. He's not the one for us to put all our hopes into. Similarly, you're not marked by one failure either. But here's the reality. The, the one that God was looking for is the one who would always live for his purposes. The one who would always live for the bottom line. The one who would be perfect in his trust of God. Hezekiah is not the guy. And neither are we. We, we fail, don't we? There's times I fail in spectacular ways as well, and all this is to cause us to say, I'm longing for that, that, that greater king to come. 
And Jesus was that better king. He was the one who always put the bottom line before everything else. He always lived for God's glory. He always did the Father's will. He always said, not my will be done, but your will be done. Even as he taught his disciples to pray, the very first line of the Lord's Prayer, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's not an opening salutation. It's his very first request. It's his main request. God, I want your name to be hallowed. I want your name to be lifted up. I want your glory to be known. This is what marked Jesus. And unlike Hezekiah, who was happy to have some peace and security in his day at the expense of future generations, Jesus, as the better king, was willing to die and experience that suffering for his people. He's the better king. And part of this is setting us up for the next part of Isaiah, saying we long for the better king. Please tell me who this is. And Isaiah tells us, and it's supposed to cause us to say, I long for that better king as well. Like Hezekiah, there's times I live for God's glory, but there's times I live for my own glory. And I do this imperfectly, and I need someone to clothe me in his righteousness, someone who always did it perfectly. And that's Jesus. I hope you see that. I hope you see our great need for a better king. You know, and if that said, when we are in Christ... I want us to see that Jesus wants us to imitate him in living for God's glory. This is why the main command that Jesus gave us is go make disciples of all nations. Live for God's glory among the nations. Yeah, we won't do it perfectly, but I want you to see this, that when we are blessed, yes, there's a top line to our blessing. There's good things for us, but there's a bottom line. And are we living for the bottom line? If you are in Christ, are you blessed? Ephesians 1.3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. If you are in Christ, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. And to be in Christ also, I believe, comes with physical blessings too. But here's the thing. That's the top line. Wonderful. But it's not the bottom line. And when I start living my life in a way where I'm only focused on what's in it for me, where I'm saying, you know, I got my uh, ticket to heaven punched. I don't really care what's going on around me. You know, I don't really care what happens to future generations. As long as there's peace in my lifetime, it's a very bad place to be. Because God calls us to live for the bottom line. So really the question for us is to consider, am I mimicking Hezekiah? Am I getting infatuated with my blessings? Am I happy with whatever happens as long as there's peace for me? Or am I imitating Jesus and living for the bottom line, living for God's glory? And I hope you are. I hope you are. Well, I'd like to pray for us and I invite you to stand and As we get ready to depart, I'd love to pray. Let's pray. God, again, thank you for this time. Thank you, God, for your word and for revealing yourself to us. And God, as we've looked at this passage today, we we saw that, yes, indeed, when we put our trust in you, you come through. You are faithful and good and mighty. God, I don't know what things are facing each person here in this room, and perhaps there are some things that are just as intimidating as having the army of Assyria at the doorstep. 
Perhaps there are things that just are as impossible feeling to overcome. And yet, God, help us to, to learn from Hezekiah's good example to put our trust in you, that you can be trusted. God, as I think about that, I just my mind goes to this Afghan church plant that we're working on. And Lord, even in that, there are so many things that just seem so overwhelming, so daunting, such high barriers. There's times I think, oh, I don't know if this will ever happen. And yet, God, there's never been a moment where you can't make the impossible happen. And so today we come before you and just say, God, would you work in a way that, yes, brings blessing to these people, but ultimately at the bottom line glorifies your name as a great God who works in amazing ways. And I'd pray the same thing for anything that is being faced by people here, personal circumstances that require something miraculous, God, that you would work and that you would be glorified in it. But God, likewise, as we look at this second example, Lord, it is so easy for our hearts to be led astray. It's so easy for us to get fixated on ourselves and to quit living for your bottom line. And so God, I would just pray today that you would help us. Help us to live for your glory among all peoples. Help us to realize how how you are working in our role in that, Lord. And God, help us not to do this in our own strength, but help us to do this in your strength. So God, in all these things, both in the the good example of Hezekiah and the bad example, ultimately, God, help us to, to live for Christ and live through his power. So God, we pray this in the name of Jesus and through the Spirit. Amen.